Hey y'all, it's Jesse. I'm asking that in honor of this episode of Kentucky History and Haunts, that my listeners make a donation to the Center for Women and Families in Louisville, and I will link to that charity's donation page in the show notes. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and I am excited to take you guys back to Louisville, Kentucky, my hometown, for this episode. So this story takes place just streets away from where my first episode took place, the William Creel story. The It's a little bit later now, so this takes place in 1887, which was the last year of the World's Fair Southern Exposition, which I might have to give its own episode. Um, The Southern Exposition was held in what is now Old Louisville. It was held for 100 days each of the five years on a 45-acre span immediately south of Central Park. I don't want to get too far into details since I'm definitely, I think I'm going to cover this later, but if you're curious, just look up photos of the Southern Exposition in Louisville, Kentucky. It was, I mean, it was unreal. Um, And I can't believe I didn't know about it before. So anyway, today's story. Mrs. Alice Brownfield, her infant son, Harold, her brother, William Bruner, and her husband, Charles Brownfield, all lived in a three-room cottage on West Chestnut Street. They didn't always live here. They had to move into this cottage, and I will get into why uh, in a bit. So this building they moved into is, I believe, one of the 766 destroyed by the 1890 tornado system that swept through downtown Louisville and up into like the Crescent Hill area. So I don't think the the original building is there anymore, but there is a building now in the same location, like the same address. So neighbors described the man of the house, Charles Brownfield, as a, quote, calm, steady family man. But as we've learned in previous episodes, um, you can't always judge a book by its cover, and there's usually a whole lot more going on behind closed doors that we don't see which is going to be the case in this situation. Born on September 28th, 1859, Charles is just like a very 1880s looking guy. He is a big mustache beard combo. He's kind of burly looking. Um, I've, I've only saw a sketch of him, but basically he's like a combination of Colonel Sanders, Santa Claus, and Theodore Roosevelt. Um, since age 14... Charles worked as a clerk or sometimes a traveling salesman for various Louisville-based companies. Sometime around 1882, Charles was on the way home from a work trip um, in E-Town or Elizabethtown, if you're not familiar, when he met and instantly fell for Alice Bruner. Alice was almost the same age as Charles, which is pretty unusual for the time when um, men definitely like to date younger. So kudos to Charles for not marrying a teenager, although that is the only compliment I'm going to give this guy. So um, this story does not have a happy ending and it 
might have something to do with the fact that they got married the day they met at Father Lawler's church in Louisville. So they, they're on their way home from E-Town. They meet and they're like, hey, you're cute. Do you want to go get hitched? So they do that. And they have their first and only son, Harold, on July 9th, 1885. So, as you can imagine, things started to go sour pretty quickly. Alice got a large sum of money, what would equate to about $116,000 today, from the sale of her dad's estate in Washington, Indiana. But because it was the 1880s, Charles was put in charge of this fortune, And apparently money management was not his strong suit. Charles quickly acquired a taste for the finer things in life, living beyond his means, and quickly depleting the funds from the estate. This is when, in September of 1887, they had to downgrade into the West Chestnut House. So to add to the stress of blowing all this money and kind of just screwing up their lives, Alice's brother had to move in with them whom Charles considered worthless. So now they've lost all this money, they've had to move, and now they had an extra person living in their house. So, what better time to develop a gambling addiction? Um, Charles was apparently a lousy poker player and lost large amounts of money, which he tried to then make up for by playing the lottery. Just one good idea after another. Uh, He was said to be highly superstitious, and he based his lottery number choices on his dreams. People who saw Charles on the evening of November 3rd, 1887, said he seemed pretty normal. Charles's brother, Henry, visited the home the next morning around 6 a.m. Charles greeted Henry at the door, briefly said hello, and sent him on his way. So Henry did not get invited in. So throughout that entire day of November 4th, no one else was seen entering or exiting the home. Finally, late in the next morning, Alice's mother stopped by the house to check on things. I love this. Alice's mom, quote, was noted in the neighborhood for continuing to wear the fashions of 30 years before. I love that little aside. So she was not the most trendy woman, but she was a very attentive mother, apparently. So Alice's sister, Mrs. Mary Seawright, was with her. When no one answered their knocks, they started questioning neighbors, but everybody was like, no, we haven't seen them, we haven't heard from them, no one has come outside. All the doors and windows were locked except for one. So Alice's mother, Mrs. Bruner, kind of peeked in and could just make out a lamp burning inside and then a a bunch of women's clothing just kind of scattered on the floor. And then she saw something else, and it took her a moment to realize what she was seeing just inches from her face. It was a body, the body of her son-in-law, Charles, hanging from a noose tied to a transom beam. The woman's reactions to seeing this drew the attention of neighbors, including one Mrs. Wallace, who happened to have a key to the Brownfield home. So by now there was a small crowd of neighbors, And the mother and sister, accompanied by this small audience, entered the home.
I'll go ahead and give you all a little warning now. I'm going to discuss the crime scene, so it is going to get a little graphic. So if that is not what you're into, skip forward a little bit. So Alice's mother and sister and these neighbors are now entering the house. Blood was everywhere. Walls, floor, bedding. The stench of death was overwhelming. Baby Harold and his mother Alice laid in the bed of the middle room in the house. Their white nightclothes turned to blood-soaked red. Both of their throats had been slit, and Alice had been beaten on the head with the blunt end of a hatchet. Their positions on the bed indicated that they had died instantly in their sleep, which I don't want to say is good, but like they didn't suffer too much. Charles was hanging in the doorway, separating that bedroom from the kitchen. It appeared he hadn't shaved in a few days, and he was just dressed in a red casual flannel shirt. A reporter described him this way, quote, The face of the wretched murderer was distorted with an expression of extreme agony, and the eyes bulged almost from their sockets. So then they move on to the kitchen and find the last body at the scene, that of Alice's brother, William. William's throat had been cut so intensely that his head was almost detached from his body. And he'd also been struck in the head with a hatchet. In describing this body, the reporter said, quote, Limbs were twisted in unnatural positions, and it appeared as if the victim had made a struggle for his life. So, unlike the sleeping Alice and Harold, there was evidence that William had been awake and had even tried to put up a fight, but unsuccessfully. So, at this point, it's still just Alice's mom, sister, and some neighbors. Finally, the police and the coroner arrive, and... They find the hatchet and the razor, assumably the murder weapons, on the floor beneath the hanging Charles Brownfield. At this time, Coroner Miller noted a laceration on his neck, on Charles's neck. This indicated that Charles had first attempted to slit his own throat, but couldn't stomach it, so he resorted to hanging instead. Which is just like... What an awful addition to this already horrific situation. This dude couldn't even commit to killing himself in the same way that he brutally murdered his family. So there wasn't much food left in the house except for a bit of bread left out on the kitchen table. And police observed that some of this bread had been eaten and it had bite marks left in it. And it was heavily dusted with pesticide. They found a box of this poison on the chair next to the table and then more poison on the kitchen floor. And then they found the letter on the mantelpiece. And I will read it in its entirety. It's short. It's cringeworthy. It is pathetic. So here we go. To whom it may concern, I, Charles B. Brownfield, murdered my dead wife and baby. Also, W.F. Bruner, my brother-in-law. I killed my wife and baby because I was tired of life and I did not want them left in the world penniless and no one to care for them. My cause for being tired of life is gambling. Now let my brothers and friends take warning. 
I killed W.F. Bruner because I did not think he was fit to live. And now I will make an attempt on my own life. So goodbye my father, brothers, sisters, friends, and relatives. I'll take warning. Goodbye. Charles F. Brownfield. Time, about 6.30 a.m. So he's... (laughs) He's basically saying, well, you know, they wouldn't survive without me, so I just murdered them anyway. Um, oh, and Alice's brother, William? Yeah, I just didn't like him that much. Just, just a shitty suicide note. Um, police were able to put together a timeline based on forensic evidence. Charles bashed his wife's head and slit she and the baby's throats sometime the previous evening. Then he did the same to his brother-in-law pretty soon after that. He washed his hands in the kitchen basin, and then apparently he just took a break for hours before making his next move. Sometime during this period, his brother came by, which is why he wasn't invited in. He wrote the note and then attempted to poison himself first with the rough-on-rats. So this guy was first planning on poisoning himself and that didn't work so he moved on to slitting his throat he couldn't handle that either so that's when finally he decided to hang himself but what's even more upsetting and this is just oh it gets to me um they realized that charles's horse and buggy was waiting outside with a suitcase full of his clothing in it meaning initially he was planning on running away or at some point he was planning on running away So you would think that he might have grabbed that suitcase and brought it back in so as not to look like, I don't know, to look like an asshole to a lesser extent. Um, But no, he left that suitcase out there so that we all get to know just how shitty he was. Um, You know, I'm, I'm glad he didn't get away with it. I'm glad he didn't run away. So a group of women in the neighborhood actually volunteered to help Undertaker Crawley prepare the bodies since there were multiple and in rough shape. So apparently back then, random people just helped volunteer and get dead corpses ready for funerals. So they removed the noose from Charles's neck and they dressed him in a striped suit, laying him out in the front room of their home for display. At the time, And especially for lower-class folks, funerals weren't held at funeral parlors, but in their own homes. The undertaker used hemp to stitch up the throats of Alice, Harold, and William. Alice and her baby were put on display in the middle room of the house, which I just hate that. I mean, that's where their bodies were found, and now they're back on display in the same room. And oddly, the Courier-Journal reported that they, quote, both made beautiful corpses, which I can only imagine is not true because they were brutally murdered and no amount of resources in the 1880s could have made them look okay. Um, But I see, I know the CJ was just trying to be nice and that's good. After close family and friends got to walk through the home saying their goodbyes to each family member, The bodies were all moved to the front room of the house, where, naturally, a long line of curious people formed. Um, They actually had to have police present to keep the line moving and orderly. 
Another huge crowd showed up the next day to watch the coffins be transported to the St. Louis Cemetery. And there, the, that Catholic church refused to have a ceremony for the murderer and his family. The suicide letter that Charles wrote wasn't really circulated to the public, so there ended up being a lot of speculation about why Charles massacred his family, and most of it were rumors started by his own side of the family, which is really frustrating. So outsiders just speculated that he was a raging alcoholic or maybe insane or that she had had an affair. Although thorough investigation drew no evidence to the claim that either party had committed adultery during their marriage. So Joseph Brownfield was Charles's brother, but not the one who stopped by the day of the murder. Um, And he started a rumor that it must have been someone else who came in and staged this whole thing because he just couldn't come to grips with the idea of his brother being a murderer. So he even went so far as to say that the suicide letter was definitely forged and the motive was robbery. And this just didn't track because the Brownfields didn't have anything worth stealing. So why would someone try to rob them? Um, Henry, the brother that did stop by the day of the murder, created a different theory. He said that Charles only meant to murder William and it was in a moment of passion during an argument while Charles happened to be breaking up coal for the fire, so he already had the hatchet in his hand. Then in a moment of fear and impulse, not wanting his wife and child to be subjected to the embarrassment of a criminal husband, he did them a favor by murdering them too. So that's, that's just a really solid theory. Other family members simply said Charles must have suffered from temporary insanity because the Charles they knew was, quote, tender-hearted and wholly devoted to his family. His family also went so far as to claim that he didn't really have a gambling problem and that he only played the lottery on special occasions. And they straight up lied and told the public that they didn't actually have any money problems. They just moved out of their nice house into that shithole on West Chestnut for fun. So finally, and most preposterously, a few family members went so low as to claim that Charles was an innocent sleepwalker. He managed to carry out this heinous, complicated, time-consuming crime while catching some Z's. This was debunked because, remember, Henry had spoken to a coherent, awake Charles Brownfield sometime in the middle of this whole ordeal. So the family even hired an expensive private detective, desperate to put the blame on someone else, but nothing ever came of that either. In the end, it was the contents of the suicide letter that was obviously the truth about the murders. Charles was humiliated by all the money he'd lost. He was blowing huge sums on poker, the lottery, and he'd spent Alice's entire inheritance. Plus, there were rumors he was an embezzler and his criminal activity was about to catch up with him. On November 10th of that year, it was discovered that the company he worked for found a shortage of at least $215 in Brownfield's work account, around $5,000 today. 
Since this finding came before the company investigated even half of Brownfield's papers, the true sum could be much higher. If you're curious, you can see the graves and the obituaries of the Brownfield family on findagrave.com. Um, just a warning, it is sad. It will, it will stir up some emotions in you, especially for little Harold. Um, for this story, I used the book Louisville Murder and Mayhem, Historic Crimes of Derby City by Kevin McQueen. And I used findagrave.com to look at the obituaries for the Brownfields. And for the Southern Exposition information, I used Louisville, or sorry, historicLouisville.weebly.com, the Southern Exposition, 1883 to 87. If you have something that you would like to talk about on the podcast or you have a topic you think I should cover, I would love to hear it. You should email kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Also, while you're at it, follow me on Instagram at kyhistoryhaunts. Find me on Facebook, Kentucky History and Haunts. Um, And please share and subscribe and review. I really, really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you guys on the next episode. So, take care.